This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Jeff Patrick. Jeff is the director of the Drug Development Institute here at the James, and we're going to talk about the long, difficult, and expensive process of bringing a drug from the bench to the bedside, and how the Drug Development Institute is helping James doctors and scientists advance basic research to clinical trials. Thanks for being with us, Jeff. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. This is a great opportunity. Jeff, you worked for pharmaceutical companies for 20 years or more. What brought you here to the James to lead the Drug Development Institute? Oh, well, it really was a combination of things. I saw a vision uh, in talking with the leadership when I was recruited here about how they saw uh, t- leveraging all of the great science and cancer research, basic research going on here at OSU and, and really enabling that research to evolve toward medicines for people uh, on top of a really fantastic team. Uh, and a fantastic organization. Um, frankly, it, it surprised me that what a fantastic cancer hospital and institute there really was here at, at a world-class cancer center. So you put all those pieces together, and uh, you've got world-class research, world-class patient care, and a fantastic team. It, it just makes it an easy decision, frankly. So then the next step is bringing some of that world-class research from uh, the bench to the bedside, which is sort of the technical term. The bench is the lab to the bedside is the patient care. Yeah, the patient care. So let's dive into that. Give us a little background on why it's so difficult, all the steps that uh, it takes to get a a drug from this idea that someone has in the lab through all the processes and trials and approvals and to to helping save lives. Sure. Um, so it is complex. And frankly, the world of academic research, that is what happens at colleges and universities like we are here at, at the OSU CCC, is funded largely by uh, grants, uh, government grants from the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health and others. And those grants are, one, very hard to, to get, and two, when you do get one, if you're lucky enough and smart enough and construct a, a thorough enough application and you're awarded a grant, generally speaking, they don't cover the costs associated with all of the elements of drug development. And what I mean by all of the elements of drug development, you really have to start with something that we call just simply a validated target, right? That is, what are we going to attack or what what are we going to activate or what are we going to block with uh, our drug? And so once we know that the target, meaning one of those, a receptor or something contributes to disease, and either we want to block it or activate it, Um, that is really the start of how drugs are developed. You start with the premise of the mechanism of action of a drug in a disease state, and then you carry that forward through, because you can identify, in fact, that a mechanism is in place, then you have to set about building and manufacturing the product in a way that does so without causing harm. Um, Because, frankly, there have been a lot of drugs that have been active They've done what they said they would do, but they also had untoward side effects. So uh, it takes a a tremendous team and a lot of experience and and a little bit of luck um, to to shepherd uh, what we'll start with by calling a research compound, something that a scientist has identified in their lab and they're working on it to evaluate its mechanisms, how it interacts with with receptors on cells. And so this is very, very early, very, very basic research. Um, And as... Were were there a lot of like getting slices of tumors and under the microscope and and putting the compound 
in to see how it reacts. Absolutely, okay, right. And, and you do and, that over and over and right, over. That's exactly right. And, and frankly, you can work on so many different attributes in an early phase. You you work with a whole collection of molecules because you're you're trying to find the one that does it the best. And so that is sort of an optimization process. Again, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of synthesis of compounds. It takes a lot of chemistry expertise. And I'm talking here about standard small molecule drug compounds that we are all familiar with, typically delivered as an oral pill or a, or an injectable drug. Um, certainly now we're moving into the era where it's a lot more antibodies, large protein-derived uh, drug products. But even the most when, basic— When you say antibody, what, that's something that goes after— yeah, so that goes after a specific target on a cell, okay. and 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 but but from the context of how that relates to what we would classically define as a drug, you you hear that terminology referred to as small molecule. That's that's basically a chemistry compound, and there's still a substantial need for those types of products. Um, and that's frankly, there's a tremendous amount of research going on around those products. But as we evolve into protein synthesis and understanding how proteins can be drugs, these antibodies and, and uh, other things like them can are, are really emerging on as, as much more prevalent in the space of drugs where it used to be almost all small molecule type compounds. And now it's expanding. It's absolutely okay. expanding. Now we're, now we're actually driving cells after tumors. We're taking immune cells and modifying them in a way that enables them to find uh, and, and attack and kill cancer cells. So that, that's the immunotherapy concept that we've talked exactly, about. Exactly, or cellular therapy. That's right. So a scientist here at the, at the James's and the Comprehensive Cancer Center has this molecule. They've tested it in the lab. They think, they hope, their fingers are crossed. They've done the research. It looks promising. That's just the beginning. That's exactly they, right. That's just the beginning because, frankly, we would want to see that they've done it more than once. <laughs> so thousands of times. Well, at least or, in triplicate, right? You okay. you want to see that because how you interpret results, depending on what's the, what the results are, there can be errors. There can be you know, there's always opportunity for something to not turn out or, or have the result you anticipated it might have. So, repeating uh, the experiments, having the same types of results, that is. That's validation that what you're doing is actually what you hoped you would be doing. Uh, and it's not an um, aberrant result. It's not just luck, uh, in fact. So if the repeatability, reproducibility is very highly sought after. In fact, it's required for advanced stage drugs. So um, you, you, ha- you understand that when you give this to a cell or ultimately a human, uh, that you're going to get a reproducible result, something that's reliable. Uh, so that's what you want out of a medication. So when that happens, it yep. is reliable, it is uh, reproducible. Um, then what? Yeah, so then you have to make sure that uh, it it has all of the other elements necessary to be a drug product. So uh, I, we like to call it sort of the valley of death, and that is uh, because it is where it's treacherous. Ideas, ideas go to die. Ideas go to <laughs> die. Well, basically, it's it's the space where the the between, as you mentioned, the lab, the bench to the bedside, um, is fraught with uh, multiple steps where they the funding may not be adequate. The team uh, constituency, because it definitely does take a team of collective minds, great minds, to work together and look for problems when maybe you got a result you didn't think you should have gotten. Why did that happen and how do you fix that or how do you make the, the compound different in, that, in a way that it acts differently? So you need a, 
a, a composition of experts. Not you know, no, no drug is built by an individual. These are m- very large-scale teams. In fact, if you look at some of the more prolific labs uh, that have been involved in drug development, like Dr. John Bird's lab, these are you know twenty-plus people, gigantic lab spaces. So um, it takes a lot of skilled people. Uh, and you have to troubleshoot uh, to make sure you get the result. So once you do get the result, then you have to continue to look at the other elements. Uh, and an example would be the ideal drug is a drug that you typically take by mouth. Uh, so if you have a drug that doesn't isn't soluble in water, for example, then it's hard to take that drug by mouth and, and make it behave like a drug. Uh, if it's not soluble, meaning it doesn't dissolve, it's, we, we sort of jokingly refer to those as brick dust compounds. So then how do we modify that uh, chemical composition so that it does become soluble? Again, as an example of one tiny uh, element of the things we have to address. So drugs have, uh, drugs have to have all of the right attributes. So, for example, as I said, preferably it has to be oral bioavailable. And oral because it's easier than having easier. to come in to get an IV. Yeah, or, if, or take a shot with an insulin. Daily. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Daily, That's exactly you don't right. Wanna, okay. You, you, so pre- you preferably, want you want an oral tablet okay. of some kind. Right, exactly. Uh, preferably, you take that tablet only once a day. Um, again, making it easy and convenient. Uh, preferably, uh, you get a robust response, whatever it is you're looking for, whatever the targeted uh, endpoint is. With a smaller dose, uh, the, the less drug product you have to deliver to get the desired effect, the better off anyone is. Because the less side effects there will well, be? Well, yeah, absolutely, or, right, because most yeah. side effects are, in fact, dose-dependent. Yeah. The more drug you give, the more likely you are to have undesired or adverse effects. So there typically is a relationship between how much drug you give and, and the types and, and the severity of side That isn't always the case, but that's sort of a rule of thumb. So, so you want to deliver the least amount that that has the best impact. And then further, you want it to be able to reach the site of action. So let's, again, go back to our pill that we're taking once a day uh, that we can take by mouth. Um, Then let's say we're trying to target an oral drug that treats brain cancer. Well, there's one more barrier in the way there, and that is it has to make it to the brain. So then you've got this nice uh, envelope around your brain called the blood blood brain barrier that is typically a challenging component to get uh, drugs across because drugs even though we refer to them as small molecules frankly they're kind of big when it comes to within, being able to cross that barrier yeah within the world of molecules exactly big. that's right so so you have to consider where the site of action is uh, you also have to consider does your liver completely digest it into nothingness because one of the things that happens right after you swallow a pill Guess what grabs a hold of it first? The liver. And it tries to sweep it out of your bloodstream. And so you have this concept called first-pass metabolism. So you lose some drug that would otherwise make it to the bloodstream because it has to make it survive going through the liver. Liver is a protection uh, organ, uh, and you're thankful you have it. But from drug delivery standpoint, you have to be aware how much of it, if if any, uh, is consumed through the liver's natural protective processes of sort of cleaning the blood out of, of chemicals, foreign well, entities. I never thought of this, but the body has protections against the pills that absolutely get, that work on cancer if, yeah. that, you, that you have to uh, defeat. Get around, that's yeah. right. And so that's why, in fact, a lot of people try to give drugs 
outside of the oral route because they sort of bypass uh, right into the blood. Yeah. So if you think about the liver's location being right off of the gut, it really is there to sweep toxins out. A big responsibility it has is to to protect you from things you've eaten uh, that are could be harmful. And so it, it does a pretty good job of, of taking a look at those types of things. But yet another uh, hurdle we have to get by is how does the liver manage this? Or further, does the chemical or the compound you're taking impact the liver's digestive abilities? And so you have these enzymes, and there's a whole boatload of them. There's 20, 30 different types of enzymes within the liver that each sort of has their own responsibility. If you think about a little army of soldiers, each one of them sort of chopping up different compounds themselves. So that's, does your drug make it by that in a quantity that reaches the target, whether it's the lung or wherever else? So all of these different pieces, and that's why I said the grant funding is generally inadequate to test each one of these various steps that you have to test a drug in. Uh, as you advance it from a basic research compound to be something that could be taken by humans. So give us a sense of the processes you just talked about. How many years, and I'm sure there's a range, and I'm sure there's also a range for the funds that it costs. Absolutely. So it's a really good question when you think about what does it take, the dollars and time, and all of those different studies uh, to, to go from the bench, the lab, to the bedside, to the patient. So there's a lot of work that has to go on. As we, we've talked about many, many steps, and frankly, there's many, many more. There's textbooks written on this <laughs> uh, that, that are 47 chapters long or something. So if you think about marshalling through each one of those, sometimes you get lucky you don't need all of them. Uh, but it's easy to conceive of that time frame being in the two- to three-year time frame and costing uh, several hundred thousand to even multiple millions of dollars. And frankly, by the time you in, enter into the human clinical studies, you're talking, you're in, immediately talking about millions of dollars. Um, so that's why the DDI really serves a very important role in helping fund and navigate and guide and de-risk these very early stage preclinical studies to make sure that we assess all of these various elements uh, and we look at them in, in the right way and we go about the right sequence. And each one of those steps that we check off, that we, yep, that made that, yes, it does that, yes, it does that, no, it does not do that, meaning something bad that you don't want it to do. Every one of those adds value to that asset, and and it also gets it one step closer to being able to be in clinical trials where the big expense comes along. Of, Of all the compounds that you see here or around the country, how many make it to the clinical trial phase? Yeah, that's a great question. And the DDI, it's important to note, has really only been in existence for about the past four years staffed with the scientists that we have. So we've probably evaluated, let's say, several hundred uh, compounds in development. Um, If you actually look at a lot of publications uh, in the space of drug development, it's easy to see numbers like 10,000s or tens of thousands of compounds that have to be evaluated before you actually get one drug. So it is a very uh, high-risk, high-reward environment. Uh, Frankly, our team staffed with uh, pharmaceutical industry-trained scientists um, who understand how to assess these various elements in a very sequential and, and methodic fashion, um, we, we believe substantially de-risks that number and can assess uh, attributes early on and make modifications and adjustments so that we, we hopefully increase the likelihood of our assets making it into the, the clinical phase of development. But even a failed compound 
adds to the puzzle because you now that this is now known throughout the scientific community that this doesn't work for this, so no one else has to waste their time trying. So it, it leads people to try other options, and one maybe one of them works. And event you know eventually, with all the thousands of people working, that's how you come up with these one miracle drugs. You you really hit an important point there, and that is um, understanding the landscape around a certain type or class of drug that you're looking at, and that's part of what the DDI also does. We actually uh, look holistically at a compound, not just. Is the science there? Is, does the science make sense for the target that we're, we're targeting? But we have to look at it from a business mindset. Again, we're, we're all trained in the pharmaceutical industry. So we understand that in order for uh, our compound to have the chance of reaching humans and being treated in clinical patients, it has to be have a lot of money invested into it to run those very expensive phase one, two, right. and three clinical trials. Well, that's outside the scope of, of a lot of, of academic institutions and certainly the DDI because we're now talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for those large-scale clinical studies that, that are run typically nationally. So in order for uh, a product to, to have that access, we have to really convince a partner. And in our case, we look for people like pharmaceutical companies to appreciate the science that, that we have in our preclinical work and convince them uh, that it not only has the scientific rationale, but frankly, somebody's not tried it and failed it uh, previously to your earlier point that you have to rely on the published literature to say, oh my goodness, somebody looked at this 10 years ago and it failed in. Why are we looking at it again? Now, because it might have failed in one type of cancer does not mean that it might not work in another type of cancer. So that is a bit of a distinction. But Let's take an example where a compound might have been tried uh, in humans for lung cancer and failed 10, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. We certainly, as the DDI, would want to know that before we encourage someone to go down that pathway and try a very similar compound in lung cancer again. We would say, wait a minute, do you know that somebody tried this 15 years ago and it failed? And so maybe we need to look at it. So that sort of business acumen is another complete element that the Drug Development Institute brings to our scientific partners. That's another thing that they frankly may not have the resources to fully evaluate is what is the landscape? Um, Another thing that we have to consider is how many other competitor-like drugs are in development Given that we're trying to convince a pharmaceutical, oh, a point, yeah, yeah, pharmaceutical partner to partner our OSU compound, are we ahead of other, of other compounds like it in the space? Are we behind other compounds like it? And so that all of these elements are really important. And frankly, the, one of the most important parts is how we work on our um, with, with our partners at the Technology Commercialization Office patent. Because in order for a pharmaceutical company to continue to develop and invest millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and take it into patients uh, from OSU basic research, then there needs to be patent protection around it. So you have to really consider all of the aspects of what it takes to make a drug. It's more than just a scientific compound in basic science. It is, in fact, also all of the other elements that, that yeah, really make to there's it. There's a business model. There's intellectual property rights. There's Is there a market for it? That's exactly all, right. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Jeff to talk more about drug development here at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. 
We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Jeff Patrick, the director of the Drug Development Institute here at the James. And when we left, Jeff was just starting to tell us about how the Drug Development Institute helps partner uh, James and Comprehensive Cancer Center scientists with pharmaceutical companies so that they can prepare and get ready for that next step, that more expensive and and difficult process of clinical trials. And also Jeff's going to fill us in on a couple of uh, drugs that were initiated here that are in that stage and are getting ready for to go into clinical trials. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. It, it is a comprehensive job that the DDI uh, helps uh, support, and that is the in, in engaging the right pharmaceutical industry partners with the right OSU James Cancer Center uh, scientists. It's not a one-for-one one match. Uh, for example, we as within the DDI actually m- take a proactive effort to go to major medical cancer medical congresses and meet with the research and development and the business development team members of the pharmaceutical companies, large and small, and expose them to what we have in development here at the Cancer Center and within the DDI. Uh, further, we also look for additional opportunities where we have expertise at the James that uh, they may may benefit their company if they're looking for a clinical trial site or if they're looking for a particular diagnostic capability or if they're looking for other expertise. So, um, Right, because there's valuable <clears throat> information and knowledge here that could benefit pharmaceutical companies that they may not know about that you let them know about. That is exactly right. And and we look at that as a business development opportunity. We think there's so much experience and expertise and knowledge at the James, and each one of those we sort of can consider an asset. We have about nine projects in development right now, drugs, if you will, in development in the preclinical phases we're working on. Uh, we actually, within the last couple of years, uh, partnered one uh, of our assets into a company, and that company has continued that development in partnership with James clinicians and scientists. And uh, that actually, we're not allowed to say the name of that. They, they've asked to, to remain um, undisclosed uh, until they, they themselves release that information. Uh, however, we expect that uh, information to be made public sometime perhaps later this year, early next year, as they are, in fact, entering human phase trials. So there's an example of right. where the, the, a DDI-developed a- asset with the James scientist is actually continuing on and, and moving toward human trials. Are you able to tell us anything about the perhaps the target of this drug? Yeah, I, I will say that it, it targets a pathway called PRMT5. Uh, and that was a very, uh, and still to this day remains a highly sought after target. And, and some of the James experts uh, were working on compounds in that space. And so uh, that uh, partnership uh, occurred in 2016. And so now here we are, 2018. The work has continued again at the expense now of a small pharma company. And ultimately, they hope to move that into human trials, uh, as I mentioned shortly. So there is a perfect example of how uh, taking uh, expertise in, in basic research, doing a lot of that work and convincing a company, hey, look what we have, uh, you should invest in this. And then they do and continue to work on it. So um, 
uh, of the nine projects we have right now, we have some really exciting projects in development. Some are very, very early stage. Uh, a lot of novelty, meaning there's a lot of sort of these are some newer molecules that, that frankly may not even exist on the market right now. That's a double-edged sword. <laughs> it may not exist because maybe others have tried it and hadn't worked. We haven't been able to identify that. It may not exist because we may be some of the first people to think about this mechanism. I'm not sure what you mean when you say a new molecule that's not been on the market before. What, what does that mean? Well, uh, uh, let me say a new class of compounds, uh, oh, okay. so a new so, mechanism of action. So, for example, we're working with Dr. Carbone's lab and his team, building uh, basically immunomodulator, something that, a compound that is designed to stop what the cancer does. The cancer turns off your immune system and it escapes that uh, being detected. This molecule, this compound that is Dr. Carbone's group and the DDI are collaborating on is intended to sort of wake back up the, uh, the okay. T cells and NK cells and other immune cells so to that recognize the to cancer. recognize the cancer. So um, this and, and I know Dr. Carbone is a lung cancer. He's a lung cancer expert. So that's okay. correct. Yes, so, that's so. that's the first. But frankly, this mechanism uh, and that's work. another important part could work in potentially multiple cancer types that had that protein that, that have that particular right uh, receptor, that if receptor, you will. That right. P, the, well, sorry, that's that. not a PDL one PD one. That's an example oh, of okay. the checkpoint inhibitors, but this is a totally different class called the DLL one pathway. So it's and found a new target, a new type a of new a checkpoint, immunotherapy drug. Right, that, that we're will working turn on. back the immune system. We're, we're, the, wow. the, again, we want to be careful about overstating right. at that, this early stage. This is preclinical trials, but that's the that's the goal. The science. Uh, there's a lot of work that has been done that substantiates that that science is, makes a lot of sense and, and is going that way. It's a very complex protein design, um, so we're we're working through a lot of those hurdles that we talked about earlier on that. That that's one example of one of the nine. Um, and there's been quite a bit of interest by, in fact, pharmaceutical companies already at this very early stage with that. Another one is that we're working with Dr. Bird's lab on a mechanism that can be used in hematologic malignancies. Uh, that is also blood, blood, blood cancer. Because Dr. Correct. Bird is a leukemia. He's a leukemia expert, yeah. world-renowned, okay. just like Dr. Carbone is a world-renowned for lung cancer. So uh, out of that lab, they've developed uh, another novel uh, sort of class of drugs. There isn't one of these types of drugs on the market right now that also is a, is a stimulator. Uh, it's an indirect stimulator uh, of the immune system. So another immunomodulatory drug that is aimed at helping the body's own immune system react either by itself or perhaps with other drugs uh, when, they, when we ultimately get to that stage of evaluating. But right now we're, we're continuing to work uh, through advancing it into that. And, and again, there's another product where a company is actually actively evaluating that compound for potential partnership. So we have uh, three of our nine compounds. Because of this proactive effort in reaching out to pharmaceutical companies, going to these medical meetings, the, the DDI team, maintaining relationships with these potential partners, uh, we've got uh, a substantial amount of in interest in a lot of the work that's going on here. And although now you're not when you partner with a pharma company, uh, Ohio State still retains the you know, some sort of intellectual property rights. And if it works and becomes a FDA approved drug, some of the proceeds will come back here, which feeds more research. 
That's exactly right. That, that's And again, I want to say that the deal-making is the purview of our partners at the OSU Technology Commercialization Office. Everything the DDI works on here is ultimately OSU property. We just try to help cultivate uh, the relationships with pharma, and, and then we hand them off to our partners in TCO who helps navigate that type of deal. But yes, They're all more of from the legal. They are the legal deal-making yeah, okay. group. That's right. Which we're, is we're, important. We're the scientists. Yeah. We just try to get yeah. it to where it looks nice <laughs> and, and does what we think it will do. Well, that's right. Scientists are not lawyers. That's <laughs> so. it by design. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's exciting. Uh, we've we've really uh, stepped up our efforts to create this proactive outreach and engage these pharmaceutical partners because, frankly, we want them to know that there's 300, 350 at any given time cancer researchers here uh, at the CCC and the James. Uh, doing this type of work, and the our nine or ten that we're working on within the DDI are a very small batch of those, but we think that they're some of the most high value uh, drug like uh, entities here at the cancer center. And and frankly, we're as we uh, move through the process, some of them will fail. That's that's the the way drug development goes. Um, but then we actually go out and look for other ones. Uh, so we're constantly surveilling the landscape with all these magnificent researchers, 300, 350 plus. We have a lot that yeah. we have to sort through to find those uh, highest value assets that are most likely to lead to uh, a drug that a pharmaceutical company will want to invest in and keep driving forward. Now, you've been doing this for 20 plus years. You sound still extremely excited and passionate about it. How would you sort of describe the stage we are at now compared to perhaps when you started. It just seems like cancer research is is exploding in, in the right direction, and there's just so many more targets and pathways and ideas and compounds that are out there. It's unbelievable, and that really represents the fourth of the, of the reasons that I came here in addition to a magnificent place and researchers and team. It is the opportunity because nothing – is more important, and frankly, nothing has made more advances than the field of cancer research. And we know the impact that it has on human life here in Ohio and, and across the country. On this show, on many of the podcasts that have, have been on before this one, certainly we've talked to experts like Dr. Peter Shields characterizing several hundred thousands of people dying annually from lung cancer. And I'm certain you've talked with uh, other experts across the way, with, including Dr. Rafe Pollock, who as a surgeon sees a lot of of this on, on the surgical table. So this is one of the largest burdens that we face. It's also one of the most complex. However, the advances in things like cellular therapy and checkpoint inhibition and immune modulation and, and using the immune system to attack cancer, uh, the last decade or maybe 15 years has seen some of the most amazing advances in the field of cancer therapy that really has existed in all of mankind. I mean, this is really monumental. We have people now who live through cancer, and it wasn't very long ago that that simply didn't happen. Uh, we had nothing but very crude uh, chemicals uh, that really just targeted fast-growing cells, whether they were cancer cells or not. Um, and so that uh, precision development of, of now what we refer to as precision medicine is only continuing, and that's built on the shoulders of understanding the genetic complexities of cancer and really Cancer is a product of genetic malfunction. Uh, no, otherwise, normal cells start behaving abnormally. Their genes get corrupt. Uh, and your body does a fantastic job most of the time at, at getting rid of those uh, sort of errant uh, cells that have problems with their genetic code. 
but occasionally some of them slip under the radar, and and that's really what we've begun to understand in a much greater detail. So understanding the human genome, sort of identifying what is normal, and then continuing to understand the genetics and the complexities around cancer and what how they how they manifest um, has come so far in the past two decades through some of it with technology and and the internet and sharing of information really has culminated in in magnificent advances so the opportunity to be involved in cancer research at this time is just fantastic and you and your team at the Drug Development Institute are doing a great job in moving this research forward and getting it to the next stages. So thanks for sharing all that with us. And perhaps sometime in the future, you'll come back and share some more of your success stories when some of these uh, compounds that you just talked about, the, the nine, are in clinical trials or even FDA approved. That's going to be pretty exciting. We are excited about that. We would we would absolutely welcome the opportunity to come back and talk about the great work that, that the team is doing. We really, really are excited. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.